I had a Holocaust survivor as for a father and I had a mother that was a pioneer in Israel. So they both had really hard childhoods and it was all about survival. So I really got the gift of survival. I'm definitely a fighter, which I think has served me well. And I think we, we should all be fighters because it's our life and we should all create the best life we possibly can for ourselves and be as good of a person as we can for others. In terms of visioning, I didn't really get a lot of that. And I could have gotten more of that from friends, but I also wasn't in the space to level up because I didn't see that I could actually engage with people that were leveled up. It took me a long time to realize that where you come from is not who you are or who you're going to be. So that was that was a journey for me. Welcome to Ria Radio, episode 111 with Tamar Hermes. You're listening to Ria Radio, the nationally trusted name in real estate investing. We dig deep to discover investors' why in real estate. If you want to skip all the BS and get in investors' heads, you're in the right spot. Be one of the thousands to check out riaradio.com. You ever, you ever, you ever noticed Ted's eyebrows gets like, like really, uh, and Ted like you know, really in the middle of that boxing. Just like ring. a deep man. You are, you are literally in the middle of that boxing ring when you are saying that person's name. <laughs> it's my calling that just never happened. <laughs> Maybe I need to start pra- uh, practicing that when I do the re events. Yeah, your Mike, your Ted Buffer uh, voice. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I did do it when we did the the hundred anniversary uh, party. You yes, you talked a lot, I, but I but I I started it like that. Remember? <laughs> yeah, that was good. I think it was well received. People like Ted Buffer. Ted Buffer, yeah, <laughs> better than me, you know, Ted Bundy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I okay. I think I might have mentioned this to you guys before, but I don't know what I'm like. I love true crime stuff. Are you guys into that at all? Like I listen to uh, podcasts about it. No, I don't, like, I don't serial killers. I'm like, have you seen like the Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy or Dahmer? Did you watch Dahmer on Netflix? Yeah, I did watch that. Oh man, yeah. I re- I don't know what is wrong with me, but I really like that stuff, and I like reading about it and hearing like it's just twisted and weird and I don't know that like, pulley. Yeah, eh, it's it's pretty dark. <laughs> like there was this. I I listen to this uh, podcast occasionally called Morbid. And they have it, there's like 500 plus episodes of it, but there's a serial killer in uh, in Canada that used to dispose of the bodies. Uh, he owned a pig farm, so he would just you know use your imagination here. Yeah. But yeah, like 49 murders in Canada. I thought Canada was supposed to be nice people. <laughs> I mean, I'm re- rethinking my whole outlook on Canadians now. Speaking of serial killers, <laughs> wasn't there, wasn't there that movie that uh, where he, he he was a cannibal and. Uh, and he silence of the lambs yeah and then in like part two or three they fed they fed the people to the yeah. pigs hannibal, hannibal. uh i think yes. is what it was called hannibal yeah. and the red dragon and yeah. The, yeah the old guy and the, i i think that actually came as a it was inspired by this dude that i'm talking about the serial killer that's what i was wondering but um there's a uh, so true detective i don't know if you have ever seen this on hbo it's uh my favorite series probably of all time had uh, matthew mcconaughey and woody harrelson in it yep uh, there's three seasons season two sucked Season one was by far and away the best. Season three, eh, it, it was it was fine. Season four is coming out on January fourteenth. Uh, I'll probably have watched two or three episodes by the time this airs, 
uh, Jodie Foster is going to be the lead in it. It's going to be amazing. Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. Uh-huh. Yep. I, I, I do enjoy some Silence of the I Lambs. cannot wait for this to come out. <laughs> so speaking of the pig thing, though, I was, I was watching You Are What You Eat on Netflix. And uh, and it's a it's a whole study about you know your yeah, diet. Yeah, it's do- documentary, right? Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I think I've seen that when I've been scrolling for something to watch. I'm only on episode two, but they, they're talking right now about the pig farms. And they're like, oh, yeah. The millions of pounds of waste that comes off the pigs and there's these pig farms and then they 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 hook up these huge hoses to them and they actually uh spray it onto the crop fields and and and, and just to disperse it all the waste yeah it's for a fertilizer is what they're going for there and the lady's like yeah i i'm fifth generation in this house and she's like and then it just oversprays her and her her house and herself like they should like the kids went out and played in this Stuff just sprayed on them, dude. I think I, I think I might have caught this. Uh, this is an older uh, special, right? Didn't just, they just brand new? Oh, it did. okay. Because if I'm not mistaken, though, those people, like a lot of them, got cancer around those areas. That's what they're, ta- that's what they're talking about right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So all the all the uh, animal waste and like fertilizer and gross stuff. Yeah, kind of nasty. Yeah, all the contaminants and they were living in living around it. It got into the water supply, like all that. There's only one bacteria that's inside, and it's uh, that's is on this house and it's only found in the pig's gut but yeah it can cause oh, cancer. like e coli or something like that it, it's not e coli but it's something i never heard of but yeah i mean they're just talking about anyway totally off topic quite the wide-ranging uh intro <laughs> we got here well, i what? mean we're talking about pigs and and he's serial killers about, and- yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well hey i've got a i have a really good uh Golden, golden nugget, nugget to, to share today, I oh, think. Today's golden nugget is brought to you by Jam Real Estate Capital. Hi, it's Rob, Jam Real Estate Capital. We're the money guys that you need to know for all your real estate investments. Talk to us. We can do what your local bank can't or won't do. 844-WE-CLOSE or go online at jmrecapital.com. That's jmrecapital.com. Jam Real Estate Capital, smart solutions for the real estate investor. You, I, I been, think it's good. You've been like rubbing your hands together. I have. I, this so this is this. a good one, I think. Um, so do you guys know that the Fed, so the Federal Reserve of the United States, does not actually print money? Did you know that? You hear people throw that around all the time, right? Like the Fed yeah. prints money, blah, blah, blah. Did you know that it's actually the U.S. Mint that prints coins? Yep. yep. And the so that they only print coins, and the U.S. Treasury's Bureau of Engraving and Printing is the one that prints the bills. Now, here's here's where I'm going with this. The Fed actually increases or decreases the money supply by buying or selling US treasuries. They're not actually printing money. Did you know this? No. So, what they do is they pay for the tre- treasuries by crediting funds to the reserves of the banks in the system, right? So they they say, "Okay, you're an FDIC bank, I'm going to give you this in your reserve accounts." And now guess what? In the fractional reserve banking system that the U.S. operates in, banks can lend out, and it varies depending on the Fed's uh, regulations. They can tighten or loosen it. But a multiple of eight to nine times the amount of money they have in reserves, they can loan out. Yep, I heard about this. So in uh, March 15th of 2020, to keep the economy going during the COVID times, they actually reduced it to zero. A bank had no requirement to keep any reserves to offset the amount of loans they had issued. Isn't that insane? That is insane. So fractional reserve banking allows banks to use a deposit multiplier on loans, right? So 80 to 90% is, is fairly common, but 
That's a common misconception when people actually think the Fed hits a button or fires up an actual printing press, and that's not the case at all. They don't even do anything other than basically push a button, and what that does is gives reserves to commercial banks, right? Not just commercial banks, but that to, to banks, and then those banks create money by taking a multiple of what they have in reserves and issuing loans. So the money supply is increased just by magic. Right, so the Federal Reserve gives it to banks. Banks then make the loans, and that's what creates their money supply. And then, if they want to decrease the money supply because inflation is rampant, like it has been, then they buy the Treasuries back. They take them out of circulation from the banks, and they tighten up the restrictions on it. Pretty interesting, right? I wanted to bring that up because this gets thrown around all the time, and I don't think people understand what actually happens with the Fed. And you wonder why all the banks are failing right after the pandemic. Yeah, right? <laughs> I know. It's like, oh, hey, you guys don't need anything. Just make loans. It's all good. <laughs> and, and now they're retracting like, oh, you need to have this amount of money in just to be able to do the loans. Yeah, it's a very, very delicate balance of what they have to require for the this banking system to work. Hmm. It's a fine line a lot of times between catastrophe and a lot and huge growth of the economy. Just go back to the gold standard, boys and girls. There we go. Could you imagine? So, could you imagine how stressful it is to constantly having to be adjusting your rules, I guess, and your regulations to allow the economy to be stabilized? Like, and people are just mad at you all the time, all the time. about everything. No matter what you do, they're just mad. <laughs> like, ha- at least half, if not more, are going to be mad at you, no matter what decision you make. But it's not politically uh, ran at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But so. but when you when you when you talked about the mint, it reminded me of Money Heist. We were talking about Netflix series before. Have mm-hmm. you seen Money Heist? I have not. You oh my gosh. Have you seen Money Heist? I have, but it's been a while. <sighs> Money Heist is so good, bro. Please go on and look at it. Go watch it. Okay. Well, that was uh today's Golden, Golden nugget. nugget. Hopefully you got something out of that. I I, I just think it's um interesting that it's such a commonly misperceived way that our money system actually functions hmm. so it's uh yeah look it up if you uh want to you know there's a whole bunch of information out there about it but uh yeah pretty pretty cool i feel like we're always getting some interesting bank and loaning advice from owen in every intro that we get i mean he's a lender now <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know like he's he's probably okay what what would you say your business if you had to give per- per- uh, percentage um share to Attention, time, stress, everything with liquid lending and with your um, versus everything else. Red ladder. <laughs> if you had to split it between those two, like, is it more on liquid lending or is it um, more on red ladder side? I think it. I think with um, with red ladder, it's more annoying uh, the stuff that I have to deal with and less predictable because you just don't know when leads are going to come in. You don't know when problems are going to happen at properties. Mm -hmm. Now you could make, you could argue the case where that's the same thing with loans, but it's not as, it's not as high touch, right? It's just basically like, you know, you underwrite a deal, you approve it, money goes out. You just kind of sit back. I mean, yes. Could there be problem loans and problem borrowers? Of course, but it's not as like, Oh, the pipes burst. You have to haul ass over to a property and, you know, to do the shutoff or whatever. Or like somebody slipped and fell at your property or something's on fire. <laughs> like, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And it's always bad whenever you hear it. It's not like your phone rings and people are like, hey, good news. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> you know what I mean? I have a bag of money for you. Or like, you know, hey, we shoveled your driveway. We noticed it was over. It's never that. It's always bad. My property manager called me while we we're sitting here and I'm like, I'm like, oh, great. What do we got? I know. Cover? It's like, you know, if you had like the bat phone and then like you know a phone where 
normal stuff happen. Like your your bad phone would be the bat phone of you know running a flipping business. So I think. What do I spend the most time on? I would say it's probably pretty close, but um, definitely more high stress on the on the red ladder side. Yeah, um, I liquid lending. If I, I think red ladder is just a business I own and operate out of, um, just because it's so hard to get out of. It's it's like when when a deal comes in and you can make a hundred thousand dollars on it, it's really hard to fold a business like that. You so, know what I mean? so do you think that you would ever? like move more into the liquid lending and less in the red ladder or you would still keep it as is right where it is right now i don't see how i can do less with red ladder or or like with liquid lending is is scalable i mean that that's a i mean we haven't really done a whole lot of marketing um we have to be careful about marketing too much because we don't want to run out of money well i mean it's a good thing a good problem to have but you also don't want to turn customers away yeah right you, so it's a balance brandon is in liquid lending as well right yes so you and brandon in liquid lending and you and brandon in red ladder yes so let's say that you decide to spend less on marketing paper clicks and all these different things then that would be less on your red ladder side and then you'll be able to i guess focus more on the turn that money into liquid lending side and brandon win hurt because i mean he's in liquid lending too so if that makes more money he makes more money too so yeah but i mean we have we have red ladder set up to like i get a paycheck every two weeks okay. from red ladder right, right. so yeah. it's an s corp we have it set up i have payroll and all that so that's our like that's our pay the bills you know type money and yeah we have marketing to generate leads and all that and then uh work them through the system and that's how we acquire deals also so if I shut off the marketing to that, it means I can't add to add to the portfolio based on lead gen. You know, I can't make those big rips of you know fifty grand, hundred grand, stuff like that. Yeah. So it's harder to do that. Liquid lending, I I, I think it's more easily grown, mm-hmm. um, and it's just I don't know. It, it's like of the two businesses, I definitely if I could only pick one, I would pick liquid lending. Yeah. It's it's way better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's less stressful, less work. Uh, when there is work, you know, yeah, yeah. and yeah, we have sense. staff and Angie does a good job running the day to day. You know, I'm, we, we're all, I like, I probably spend, I don't know, like 15, 10, 15 hours a week on liquid lending, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's over the course of a year that's meetups and going on speaking engagements and, you know, meeting in person with people and raising money and yeah. meeting with banks and all that. So, cool. all right, well, should we, uh, get into today's episode with Tamar Hermes? Tamar Hermes, welcome to the show. This has been fun seeing you again after uh, BPCon. It's been a bit. Welcome to Omaha Virtually. Thank you. I'm excited to be here virtually. Now, the first question I have for you is a hard-hitting one. Um, who, was the, who was your favorite and least favorite actor that you ever worked with when you were an executive in uh, television? <laughs> Oh, that's great. So creative. Uh, it's it's funny that you asked that because my husband actually is a film and television director. And uh, he would love that you asked me this because I always make jokes saying that I don't watch TV because I don't have time to. When I worked in television, I would say that I didn't actually hang out with that many celebrities in person because I did what was called on-air promotions, which is a function of taking shows and and uh, working with the material 
and, uh, in, in, in making advertisements from that. So I didn't work with that many. I've met a lot of celebrities and probably my favorite was Natalie Portman. She was not on television and, uh, she was just a delightful, smart and kind person that could have had a really big ego given her stature and success in the business. And she was really lovely. My husband actually did a, a movie with her called Where the Heart Is in Austin uh, before we lived here. That was one of our first forays in Austin, probably 25 years ago before we moved no here. No kidding. Yeah. I remember the very first time I saw Natalie Portman um, on on film was a, uh, it was a movie called Beautiful Girls, I believe. And it was like Matt Dillon and, and there were some other famous people in it, but I was blown away. She, I, if I remember correctly, it was, she was 14 years old at the time, and she came across as like insanely smart. I mean, she was really like witty and like smart and just on point. I was like, that girl is going to be a superstar when she grows up. I remember, so I called that one. Didn't she do the one with like the assassin? Yeah. Uh, yes, it was uh, the professional. Professional. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. I, that was the first yes. one I saw her. Yeah, she was really good at that too. Yeah. The other thing okay. that I thought was you called that Natalie Portman will be a star. So I thought if real estate doesn't work out for you, maybe you could be an agent. I'd be a talent scout. I think that's about all I got left in me. I, obviously, I'm not good for on screen. I'm more of a radio guy, as you can tell. Totally. Uh, thanks, Ted. Yeah. Um, so the, so it's interesting that uh, that you've been in uh, in television and the entertainment industry. Like, how did you cut your teeth in that originally? Why Why did you end up there? And and maybe if you could lead us kind of through the path on what took you to real estate eventually. Absolutely. So I think. Like most people, I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life and wanted to make sure that I did something that was fun and enjoyable and never really thought of starting a company or owning real estate. So the only option that I had was to work for someone. So it seemed that working in entertainment would be exciting. So I pursued a position in entertainment. I also had applied to NYU graduate film school and was accepted. And since I didn't have very much money, I decided to go for the job. It probably was one of the questions that I asked myself when I look back, what if I would have done the NYU film school? And it's interesting how we juxtapose that and, and look back, no regrets, because I did what I did. And I also think about that. The other part of getting into real estate happened for me because I was an executive in television. I was making over six figures. I was investing in the stock market. It wasn't going that great for me. So I started looking at what other options there were and where I could cut down on my bottom line and make more money. And the landlord at the time that was that was uh, taking my check every month was in television. So I thought, well, why don't I figure out how to buy a place? And then that's when I did and realized that not just uh, very, very wealthy people that grow up wealthy that are born into real estate can own real estate, that it's actually something that a lot of us can own and profit and from and enjoy. I always thought when I was uh, probably like, teenage to early 20s, I always thought people that own investment real estate are just like, I will never be able to do that because they have so much money that they either inherited it or they're just either way smarter than I am or they had a business. They had some type of advantage over me that I would just never get there because I was like 
spent, you know, spending my paycheck. I didn't really have much left, invested just a little tiny bit. I'm like, this is going to take forever. And I didn't understand that until I read my first real estate book about creative finance and how all that worked. And, and then the light bulb came on. But that's interesting that you, you, uh, you were a resident in a, a TV executive's property. Was that, was that just coincidence or did you happen to meet him while you were working there? And then he's like, Hey, I have a place. And you ended up moving in there. How'd that work? It was just a coincidence. Huh, and that's... we can look at coincidence though, and also think where in our lives and anyone listening can think, okay, things that happen to us that move the needle forward or make us think about an idea or a connection we make, is it coincidence or are we also divinely guiding it? So maybe it was a messenger from some space that drew me to this cute little house in Los Angeles that just so happened to have an owner that was a person in television as well. Yeah. So how long after you found out uh, that, okay, this guy owns a property, I live in the property, we're in the same business. What what was your first, uh, I guess, deal or like, how did you get involved in, uh, in, in your first acquisition? So I had saved m some money and I had $40,000 and this was 25 years ago. So I started looking in the area that I lived and looked for a duplex because I realized that I could get a tenant, which sounded great. And I just started looking and once I could afford it and it seemed like it would work, I just went for it. Yeah. And now did you house hack then? You Did you live in one half and rent out the other? I did. I did. Nice. I made a lot of mistakes because it was Los Angeles and there was a lot of things I didn't understand about how squirrely LA renting was. And I've learned since. And that's all part of it, though. You're going to sometimes dive in and there's going to be some corrections. And it still worked out pretty well for me because actually that property is still kept and there's well over a million dollars of equity in that property. And that's that's a great insurance policy. If I ever if I ever saw one myself. Oh, no kidding. So you, you hung on. You still have it, huh? Uh, 25 years later. That's awesome. I did. Yeah, I think because when I grew up, I didn't really have a house of my own with my family. We, we moved around, we lived in apartments and didn't really have the financial means for that sort of security. So I feel like that home signifies something special for me in the idea that maybe you didn't grow up with a home, but you could create a home and you can own that home and you could do the same things that you would have wanted as a child to have and create them. So Homes create a bond. I, you guys know, but my my uh, first house, my first investment property was my family home when they came to this country, and I wanted to keep it. And I'm actually remodeling that property right now. But it it, it has that spot in your heart. Uh, yeah, there's something sentimental about it. I could have, I could have uh, 1031 exchanged it and kept selling it. And actually, uh, there is a, there's an investor that's a friend of mine, Mark Hentiman. I don't know if you've had him on. He'd be a great guest for you. Mark is a uh, is actually the creative director on Family Guy and uh, and has been for many years and also is a very successful multifamily investor. And whenever he shares his story, I think, wow, talk about how a path could diverge. So he had bought a duplex around the same time as me. I didn't know him then. And he ended up selling it, 1031 exchanging it, buying bigger, buying multifamily and stair-stepping up and not gaining an attachment to the property. 
and I just kept it. Whereas I have maybe a million dollars in equity I, and I've refinanced it a couple of times. So let's say it's, you know, it's been even more profitable than that. The point being that Mark having 1031 exchanged it over the years probably made maybe 10 million. I'm guessing. I'm sure he appreciates me sharing his, uh, his approximate <laughs> net worth on the, on the, uh, podcast here. <laughs> Oh, uh, that's awesome. So you um, living in Los Angeles and house hacking your very first property that you uh, really, it sounds like ever even lived in uh, that, that was own- an ownership. Any tips looking back now and going through that process for somebody that's looking to acquire their first property and especially in, you know, like right now you live in Austin, Texas, correct? Correct. And now, am I right in thinking? So you you lived in LA for a while. Did you ever live in New York, or am I making that up? I did a little for a little while. Okay, I'm not stalking you, but um, I just happen to know things. He's and, stalking you. Don't worry. And uh, <laughs> now you've lived in some really really expensive places for cost of living, but you, you it sounds like you you made a really smart move here with the house hack. It can really you know make a, a difference in your uh, bottom line when your your living expenses right when you have somebody paying half of your. Uh, half or maybe even more than that for your mortgage. Any like if you were talking to somebody that was kicking around getting into real estate investing and they wanted to start with a house hack because it was their going to be their first deal. Any like warnings or tips or any anything uh that you might uh give as advice uh, for somebody that, lo- that is looking to do something similar? The warning that I would give is to be thinking about it and not do it. It's one of the best ways to get started in real estate is to do the house hacking is has it's been coined uh method which is essentially that you have one or two or three rooms that you can rent out and you live in in the other room or you have maybe a fourplex and you live in one of them and then you rent the others and that i would say that that is one of the best strategies and you can really monetize on it too if you actually live in the house for two to five for two to five years and then you can actually uh sell that house if if there's appreciation and you can get a a great tax deduction if you're single it's two hundred fifty thousand, and if you're married it's a half a million now granted it needs to the the property needs to appreciate that much if you're buying in a in a place like la or austin or new york you you have a a better chance of those kind of appreciations. But even if it goes up $50,000 and you don't have to pay tax on it, that's a great savings. Yeah. And so after you had been doing that for a little while, now I'm not, I'm guessing here, I'm assuming you probably didn't know what you were going to do with real estate when you made the decision to do this house hack. Was it more of like, I want to kind of like try a different investment strategy, but also I want to find my, buy my very first property. So it was kind of like lessening your, your uh, monthly expenses, putting a roof over your head. But did you have a fully formed plan on like what you were going to do? Please tell me no. Heck no. I can tell you, I can, I can say yes, but heck no. I think, I think none of us really have a fully laid plan when we've never done it before. Even when I had my first child, I had a plan. I knew how I wanted the birth to go. I knew what I wanted to happen. I knew how the process was going to go. And it went the way it went. So the, uh, which it went very well, by the way, the point being is that we can have best laid out plans in every scenario. And there's always going to be variables that we don't control or that we can't anticipate. So I did not. And that's 
part of it is the exhilaration of living full throttle into the world and realizing, okay, I want a property or I want 10 properties and actually going forward and mitigating risk and then also troubleshooting on the way in the process and and still making it work. You mentioned uh, in in your property in LA that you had a lot of uh, squirrely tenants and, and it, it's difficult to rent. And it sounded like you had some lessons that you might have learned in, in with that. Is that safe to say? I'm actually pretty good at, at getting tenants. I'm just saying you can, and there's a lot of really crazy laws. I mean, especially during COVID, we found that, right? You saw what happened. Then people, you don't let the inmates run the asylum. That's what we always say. So it's just not not great when you know tenants have more rights than people that work really hard to buy the properties. Yeah, well, yeah we're fully on board with that. Yeah. So that that was kind of my point, but I've been really lucky. My tenants are pretty good. Now that, had, I mean, I've had a lot, and they're they're all you know, knock on wood. I don't want to give myself a a curse here, but I've been really pretty lucky. I also have several Airbnbs now, and I've been pretty you know that's been pretty decent too. All right, so um, tomorrow the house hacking thing. What did that lead to, and how long I guess did it take for you to um, say you you know what I'm kind of you know making some money on this. This seems to be working. Why don't we look at maybe doing this again? Uh, what did that look like? Maybe your next deal. Yeah, so it's interesting because I had a lot of trepidation, like a lot of first timers, and I was pretty nervous about that sizable investment. It was four hundred thousand dollars, which was twenty five years ago. It was a lot of money uh, for a lot of us. Four hundred thousand is still a lot today. And so I took my time with it. I think it was probably another maybe eight months or a year before I bought another duplex. So I basically went with the same model because it worked. And I figured I kind of had that down a bit and could and could could navigate it. And so I ended up buying buying another. It didn't take me long to realize that it was a good way to go. It was just a matter like most investors getting confident in terms of, okay, this is a good deal. I can make this work. If this doesn't work, then I can do this. I can manage it this way. All of the questions that come up and all of the things that I was talking about and we were sharing about ideas and things that can go wrong and how we can navigate them once we're in it. Yeah. Now, how long did it take you to eventually get, I guess, a pathway to where you felt comfortable quitting your job to pursue real estate full-time? Did that take a while or was that a fairly fast process? So I would say my process was a little bit different than a lot of people because life also was happening at the same time. I was married. My husband's career was taking off. I started another company. I, I was having a child. So I had a lot of other circumstances come come along at the same time when I decided to go full-fledged into real estate and leave my career in, in entertainment. There's a certain point at which we want to set ourselves up to navigate into the next season of our lives. And I think that the worst feeling is feeling trapped that you have to stay at the job for a really long time if you don't like it, or it's not fulfilling for you, or a company that's not satisfying or not making the kind of money that you want and it's too much stress. All those questions are are 
vehicles that that drive us to move forward in a direction that works. And for me, real estate always worked. So I just kept doubling down on that. Yeah. What is Little Foot Enterprises? Wow, you really went through my my <laughs> so yeah, Littlefoot was He's not a stalker. It's not, not a stalker. <laughs> Littlefoot was the name of the company that I that I had when I was freelance doing uh doing on air promotions, writing, producing, and editing for different studios. That, uh, I thought that was an interesting anecdote because uh, I, uh, I have a business partner that owned a business called uh, Tiny Footprints. So I thought uh, maybe you guys would uh, would hit it off. She's uh, really into women empowerment and and that kind of thing with business too. So she's uh, she's she's awesome. Well, connect uh, us, please. Yes, absolutely. Did you have something? I have children's shoes written down here. Was that did that have anything to do with that? Mm-hmm. I work as the head of sales for a small shoe company that I turned into a multi-million dollar company. And that was a lot of fun and pretty easy to do when I had such cute models as my children. So that was one of the things I did (laughs) along my journey. Oh, that's awesome. You're now into the, uh, the coaching and mentorship. I guess, at what point did you transition from investing and and uh you know deploying capital and finding deals and and all that fun stuff into uh actually mentoring other people and and becoming more in the spotlight with the things that you have been doing yourself and and then uh you know passing that knowledge along to others I reached a certain point where I realized that I could keep making money I kind of hacked the not hacked figured out how we make money And once I was able to do that, I realized that I could continue making more and more, or I can start sending the elevator down and supporting others. And along my journey, I also started seeing a lot of bad information that I was getting about how to mitigate on taxes and how to diversify the portfolio and what kind of assets to be buying and what kind of investments to be making. And I was curious too, because it's a big world of opportunity. And so that was when I started to support other women. And now uh, you have, uh, you want to give a a shout out to your, uh, your coaching program or your, your business uh, uh, now that you run? Sure. So it's called Wealth Building Concierge. And I work with women to support them on building wealth and wealth strategies and real estate investing portfolios. That's awesome. Now, like what gave you the idea to do that? Were people kind of coming up to you at uh, at events and you're like, oh my God, you're so smart. Can you teach me what you know? And and uh, like, is that how that happened? Was it a natural evolution or what did Everyone that Everyone thought like? I was so smart. <laughs> You know, the thing about it is, is that it really isn't that easy to help other people. And it may sound crazy for me to say that it's from experience and seeing how we navigate in the world and our perspective. So at first you think, oh, I'm going to help other people. I'm just going to raise my hand and everyone's going to come to me and throw money at me. And that's not really true. If you look at a lot of the people in, in the space that are big names, they either worked for many, many years for nothing to get the audience, somebody like Brandon Turner, and build trust and get people that know who he was, or you are someone that is really good at marketing, 
or you're someone that's really good at networking or you're doing a lot of webinars and doing a lot of footwork to build a business because everything's a business at the end of the day that uh, that monetizes and it's providing value. So it wasn't, yes, it wasn't as easy as everyone just telling me how smart I was. I wish it was, although I probably wouldn't appreciate anything as much. Wouldn't it be great if everything was just that easy and everyone just threw money at us and gave us great deals on properties and I guess maybe for Pace Morby, I don't know. He seems to, <laughs> seems to, be the best he seems to kind of have that going on. He he was on uh, he was our episode one hundred guest. He was uh, he was a lot of fun to talk to. So uh, you can understand why I'd say that he's someone who's very magnetizing. Seems to just have everything dialed in. I'm sure he's human on the planet. I don't know him personally, although he's someone that I would use as an example of someone who just seems like he's always finding deals and and getting people to just call him saying he's so smart. But he, he also works his marketing funnel pretty well. He's about as real as it comes when he, when it comes to interviewing. Yeah, he was just a cool dude. You know, I mean, you could just sit back and ask him anything, and he'll tell you. And and uh, just like I mean, just like you're doing, but he um he just seems approachable and like Joe Everyman. That that's what I think is his secret sauce because uh, people aren't necessarily as intimidated talking to him as they are, you know, six foot uh, eleven Brandon Turner, however however tall he is. I don't know people are intimidated <laughs> talking to him. <laughs> no, yeah, he's he, he, he was out around them, so you got to kind of try to funnel through. Exactly. So, what what could a person expect if they were going to uh, sign up for your um, your concierge program? So, there's several different areas to the program. Most of what I'm doing now is focused on a mastermind. So, it really is about sourcing wisdom, getting the connections that I have that I've built over the years that I've spent a lot of money to get into these circles to learn from the best and to establish relationships with them. It's about being able to be on your own course and getting the advice and the the direction to move forward and take action. Now, is it is it primarily real estate related, like somebody that um, is looking to kind of like get around other people that are doing big things and, and being able to scale up and use, uh, you know, smart people as a sounding board? Or is it uh, more of like a life, uh, you know, coaching program where it's all encompassing? It's pretty focused on real estate and wealth building. And so a lot of the women already have portfolios or have several properties and are looking to figure out next steps, next strategies, ways to build. And it's interesting that you're bringing up, is it all encompassing? I was just actually on the phone with one of my mastermind members before this call. And we were saying that wealth is really also about wellness. It's also about your mindset. It's also about how you show up. And when we get too one-sided in wealth, it can feel very one note. So I always try to bring in some genuine qualities about how we feel about ourselves and where we're where we might not be moving forward and strategies and techniques that we can use. I'm personally uh, a big advocate of yoga. I do a lot of breath work. 
So I'm constantly working on myself and my growth. I'm also a cold plunger. Fun fact. I my husband and I cold plunge every day. (laughs) I actually didn't. This today is one day that I missed. And as soon as I'm off of this, I will actually, it's raining outside. It's probably about 30 degrees outside. And I will go out into 40 degree water and plunge. Now, do you go, like, how long does it take you to warm back up? That's what I've always wondered. Like, do you go just jump right from there into a sauna or are you just like cold plunge for life, yo? And then you're, (laughs) you're like cold for the rest of the day. Well, I'm like, I'm getting older and, you know, I don't know what it is, but like, I used to be hot all the time and never cold plunged. No, not on purpose. Okay. That's your assignment. It actually reduces inflammation, reduces stress. There's a lot of benefits to it. The thing about uh, warming up your body afterwards, it depends on what you do when you get out. If you do some movement, you're obviously going to bring some heat into your body. If you just sit there, you're then you're going to be pretty cold. You can also get into a warm shower. You can get into a sauna. There's other things you can do. I would say try it and see what you feel like you need once you're, once you're uh, done with it. I do it one, it's about winning the day. It's a discipline. It also really reduces a lot of inflammation in my body. I had a back issue for a while and it really helped to calm it down. So I'm a huge advocate. It's not fun getting in. And once you are in, then it gets a lot easier because most people, once they're in, they're not going to get out until two to three minutes at least because you already got in, you already did the hardest part. So you're not going to fail. So I always sauna after the gym for like 20 minutes and then I'll go home shower because you're all sweaty. Right. And then I always finish the, And then as I'm in the shower, I, I, I move it colder and colder into the point where I can't handle it. And then that's the point where I turn the shower off and it, it definitely helps with the soreness. It's not a cold plunge. I don't have a, I don't have a, uh, a plunge, but I've gone plunging. I've done, I've done the polar plunges before also. And I love it, but it, it's, it's a way to try to like, just, Relieve some pain in you if you if you get any aches after working out. Oh, I've heard all about it. I just like listening to crazy people talk about. Uh, <laughs> about- <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people do say that if you just start with a cold shower. We started in the winters in Austin, jumping in the pool in the morning, and it was cold. At probably about fifty degrees, and we plunge at forty degrees now. So we've graduated. Once we realized that we were doing it in the winter time, then we felt confident in investing in the in the bath. I just I can't do the shower. I don't know why. Just when I'm in the shower, I just love the heat so much. It feels so good. I just don't want to I don't want to be cold in there. I'm curious, what is uh, tomorrow? What does your portfolio look like today or like what all are you involved in uh, business wise and deal wise and I also want to uh, touch on partnerships um, here. Maybe we could uh, we could kind of delve into that as well. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so right now my active portfolio consists of Airbnbs uh, and uh, or I can say short term rentals because we don't like to give Airbnb all the plug. Although most most of the bookings do come from there. And I, and I also have buy and holds. And then I also have a very large project with a partner that is modular homes that we're building in Austin, Texas. And that actually is pretty fascinating. It is actually having a manufacturer build the home in a factory and putting it on a truck and craning it into lots in Austin. It's been fascinating. We have 
10 right now in, in production and next year we'll do 30 and we're also in talks for uh, building a factory and there's a lot of uh, a lot of movement on the modular so that's that's a big project then my portfolio is also filled with passive investment deals i am a huge advocate of passive investing and i will also say that there's a lot that you need to vet before you go into passive investment deals because I have some passive investment deals that are more work than my active investing, meaning that the syndicators didn't do what they said they were going to do, are not giving K-1s at the end of the year. There's a lot of factors uh, that go into running running operations smoothly. One of the things that my friends and I always like to say is bet on the jockey. So if you meet someone that seems like a fast talker and tells you how great it is and that they'll never lose money, really look into the deal a little closer because there may be something that they haven't seen and you don't want to see it after your money's in the deal and you can't get it back or out of the deal. You can't glaze over the fact that you just said build a factory. Are you building a factory just to build your own properties? Or are you building a factory? <laughs> so people so, okay. So I'll say my my partner is a prolific uh, investor and a business owner. He I believe he has 38 businesses now. I only have four. And he he has a model where he likes to where he likes to join with companies and partner with them where they where if you have a viable company and you maybe have two buildings that you're utilizing for your company. But if we were to have four buildings, you could quadruple your business. So we partner with them. So we're partnering with the factory. And yes, we will do a lot on our own, but we'll also contract it out and have other partners where people will order a number of boxes to secure the factory. Yes, there will be a factory. And I, we're I actually closing before the end of the year, too. So when I said we're in talks, we're actually under contract and in due diligence right now. Now, I thought I heard you say you have a subdivi- a small subdivision that you're uh, you're doing this in first. Is that correct? You with 10, uh, 10 modular homes? It's in, well, it's in, it's in Austin. It's all around Austin. So we're focused in this area. We really believe long term in the Austin market. And there, the, the past... Five years or 10 years, it seems like everybody's been talking about cash flow, cash flow, which is make which which makes a lot of sense, because if you have cash flow, then you can leave your job because you know that you're going to get 10,000, 20,000 coming in every month and you don't have to worry about going to work every day. At the same time, a lot of people bought properties where they were cash flowing maybe a few hundred dollars. So they need 80 properties to even make it work. Or they didn't really take into account CapEx, which meant that a lot of things went wrong. And then they really were in the hole on the properties. And so the cash flow wasn't really as much as they thought. Now, whereas if you don't need the cash flow and you're not buying for the preliminary objective of having cash flow, then there's depreciation, which we can't necessarily count on. But history tells us that Los Angeles is going to be a market that's probably going to appreciate a lot. Even though there's a lot of things about California we don't like, people like living there and people pay a lot of money to live there. So if you hold on to a property long enough, 
you your equity may go up a half a million dollars. So whereas maybe you guys have a property and you're getting 10,000 a month, but I'm holding a property not cash flowing, but then when I exit, I get 500,000 or I refinance and get that much. At the end of the day, who's wealthier? I, I I like that you said that. When I when I was first getting into real estate investing, I was subscribing to the mantra that cash flow is king and you use that to exceed your monthly expenses and then you're free, right? So that was the key to get out of the rat race was build up cash flow. That cash flow can replace your job income and then you can do basically whatever you want uh, within, you know, reason. And what I found though was all of the focus on cash flow early on pales in comparison to appreciation during, you know, you catch a few hot years in the market and your uh, your appreciation and your equity is going to like eclipse your cash flow over that period of time by so much it's almost laughable. So 100%. I think you I think everybody at least uh, that I know in the Midwest, you know, we're a little bit different with our, you know, we we don't have as many wild swings in appreciation here, but we've caught quite a bit over the last, you know, since you know, let's call it the last 10 years. You know, it's been pretty much everywhere in the country has been in the same boat, but we've really skyrocketed up and I've enjoyed, you know, equity growth over that time that I wasn't counting on at all. So now I've been able to leverage that and refinance or sell and trade up or do, you know, various things to, um, you know, move some levers a lot more quickly than I thought. And that's the thing that's fun about it. When you, when you, if you stay in the game long enough, you can make moves that you didn't think you'd be able to do because the appreciation is kind of a cherry on top. So I think if you you underwrite for the cash flow and if you have the ability to withstand some punches on, you know, if it's negative cash flow for a little bit, like if you have other income sources, then you can really make some moves later on when the market will lift you up along with, you know, the rest of the country. So I I, I do, I really like that. But I also like um this this modular home thing that you're talking about. You know, we're there's all this press about affordable housing and the lack thereof. And what are we going to do to get you know affordability back to Americans and the missing middle and and all those things? You don't hear a lot of talk about modular homes, but that's interesting because it sounds to me like I brought up subdivision and you kind of correct me and said it's more in and around Austin, so it sounds almost like infill. Is that correct? Can, yeah, it is. But you can do subdivisions, and a lot of people do do subdivisions. You can do a lot with modular now, and it is an opportunity to actually make a build a house that looks like a stick build for a lot less because you can save on time and you can save on labor which are two of the biggest bottlenecks in terms of profitability they're not easy to solve for for sure we've definitely had our challenges and that's what you like what you said about staying in the game for a while you can't just try it and give it up you have to know that, okay, yeah, we're kind of down a little bit right now. And then we're going to speed up a lot moving forward, looking at the bigger picture of, of what's being established. I do think that modular is going to be more and more popular because we do have the affordability issue and there's going to be people looking to solve for that in the, in the coming years for sure. When you when you buy uh, like when you're looking to do one of these projects as a let's say it's a, a single that you're putting up a single modular home you find an empty lot it's zoned correctly 
you have a your hookup at the uh, at the factory until you you know take them out of business by creating your own bigger better factory and you put up a modular home is this typically do you like pour a foundation and and uh, and all that or is that is that how that's okay so it's yeah, more of a also, though, we're not taking them out of business we're partnering with them ah got it okay <laughs> so you you basically put uh, more of a permanent structure on a, on an actual foundation so it does feel like more of a home than you know you oh, might find it it's not like it does not look like a mobile home park yeah. at all. I mean, if I took you to, to some of the properties, you wouldn't even know that it was modular. It's what? designed to look just as good as a stick belt. Now, okay, Tamar, what what could, if you don't mind me asking this, um, can you give us kind of an idea? Like, what does something like that cost to put together? Now, I understand that depending on what area of Austin you're in, the land value is probably going to swing wildly, uh, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. But- what 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 does that look like? Maybe could you dive into the numbers just a little bit? I just think this is a fascinating. Yeah, it generally, could be uh, it generally could run around two hundred a square foot and look pretty good with medium build with medium uh, finishes. And then there's also a lot of the labor cost that that comes into play, and that that's really that's kind of a wild card. The labor the labor is really one of the hardest variables to solve for because it's hard to find the really good help that can work efficiently, quickly, and not charge you a, an arm and a leg, especially if you go in and hire subcontractors. So it's kind of a wild wild card, but for the most part, uh. I mean, I wish I could give you better numbers on labor, but it's hard to say. It depends on the square footage of the house. I mean, you know how labor is. Basically, we can get a bid for pouring a foundation for $50,000, or we can hire a contractor that has a guy that knows how to pour a foundation, and it could be 20000 right? So there's a huge spread right there. The other place where you can really uh, gain uh, profitability on, co- on, on, on the cost has to do with the time. So if you start a stick build and it takes you eight months to get permitted, to get your sketches done, to get the labor in order and efficiencies, everything can take around that time. Whereas once we have the model with the modulars, we can do it in three to four months efficiently. If we have everything stamped with the city, which is a huge process to, to begin with, but it, it definitely can can work. The one thing that it's also made me realize, and I, I've seen this with really almost every strategy in real estate and even in business, is that if you are not honed in on going narrow and deep on a strategy, that it doesn't usually pay off. So in other words, somebody might hear this and say, oh, I want to do a modular home. Well, great, go for it. But it pro- you probably won't get to the the financial efficiency without really diving in and maybe doing five or 10 to that point, because, and it's just the same thing. It's like, if you have one Airbnb, yeah, it's a great, that that can be actually very tax efficient and can be great, but just having one uh, in an area, let's say I have one in Miami beach and you have 20 in Miami beach and my air conditioner breaks. Well, do you think the AC guy is going to go to my place? where I have one or go to the, your place that has 20 first. So these are all things that we have to think about that I, you know, when you start out, we're just thinking, can I just get one? And the more people would say, think bigger and scale and more uh, structure. 
I just start to see it. Even even people that do single families, a lot of them go to multifamilies. Why? Because they're thinking, okay, because I have one house here, one house there, but I could just have one with a hundred units and manage that. It, it is a lot more complicated. I hear some people saying that it's just as easy to manage a hundred properties as it is one or two. I would I would tend to disagree, although I understand the idea behind it. I did pitch this to my business partner uh, about seven eight years ago. There's a lot of free lots in in the a part of Omaha, and I propositioned. I was like, "Hey, how about we get into manufactured housing?" You know, uh, one of the partners had a construction company. It it made sense to the foundations in, and we could get the lots for free to a five thousand dollars. Wow, that's when really we, cool. <laughs> yeah, right. When we were and then we started digging into this, the numbers were making sense, but the issue that we were running into at that time, and I'm not sure if that's changed at this point was the financing side of it. The, the the banks were not wanting to finance the modular homes. And the insurance was also a little, uh, not difficult, but different. And uh, so what is your feedback and how's that changed over the years and what you're doing with, uh, as far as like selling those or the, are these just renting options and are you guys just cash flowing the whole project? Well, no, we do have, we definitely have uh, financial partners and that is definitely my business partner has a lot of connections and owns mortgage companies and is able to, He did, we're not running everything through his mortgage company. We have par other partners for this. And I just think it all comes down to relationships and who trusts you and who knows you're going to execute. And so when they lend you money, they just want to know they're going to get their money back and they're going to, and you're going to make them whole, right. And they're going to make their profit. You have to work on the relationships. Obviously, if you don't have, if you've never done it before, and all of a sudden you go to a bank and you say, I need half a million dollars to do a modular build out, you're probably going to need a partner that's done it before or that has more money that can pack it. So that's just a matter of how you do the business. In your situation, I'm not sure why they wouldn't finance it. The pricing is working in such a way that is exactly like a regular home. We haven't had any issues. We just refinanced one of the properties and it refinanced just like a regular stick belt home. So it's definitely changed because at that time I did talk to a handful of banks trying to get this idea up and running because I thought it was like at the time I'm like I'm a genius this is gonna go this is gonna go bonkers and uh, and then I, I talked to a few banks and they're like we um, we treat financing this like tr like financing a trailer home. Yeah, it's come yeah. a long way. Okay. Because yeah. it used to be sometimes even when I talk about modular, people think that it's mobile home park quality, manufactured homes. And it's very different. If you see these houses, they look really nice. They do not look like uh, what we think of when we see manufacturers homes, which generally mobile mobile home uh, park homes are not this elaborate or high end or have the kind of finishes that, that these have. Well, uh, tomorrow, this has been uh, awesome. We, uh, it sounds like throughout all the success, uh, have you had anything that didn't go according to plan? Yes. <laughs> has anyone said no? Uh, yeah, they're like, nope. Living on the planet. Uh, yes, a lot of things have not gone right. I've actually, I've taken a lot of hits this this past year. A lot of it had more to do with uh some some private equity deals that I got into looking to diversify my portfolio and not realizing the actual risk factors involved. And also in real estate, I've had a couple of uh, 
of deals that I invested in passively that didn't work that well. And in that regard, I mean, people just not doing what they said they were going to do, maybe me not looking as closely at the lending terms and realizing that they have one of those three-year bridge loans that are going to bite them in the butt without extensions. So things like that. As far as anything that I've managed on my own, for the most part, it's been pretty pretty smooth. There there've definitely been some crazy tenants, there've been some crazy scenarios, there've been times where the money wasn't flowing as as I wanted it to, and I would also say that it it has never really lost me money. So, uh the the caveat with actively managing and owning your properties is that it is a lot of work and at a certain point the the coin phrase, I don't want to fix toilets. You may not be fixing toilets, but you may be answering phone calls that you don't want to answer. So, so out of all the failures that you've experienced in life, which one had the, the most prominent lesson that you've learned? In terms of in terms of my real estate investing? Yes, ma'am. I would say hmm, biggest lesson in terms of real estate investing. Probably some of the duplexes that I bought in Los Angeles and not realizing how the laws were with rent control and how many barriers there were to being able to raise rents and control the properties, which I hadn't understood or anticipated when I first got into investing. I did have to pay one tenant $70,000 to move what? out of the property, which is crazy. You could buy a house for that in other parts of the world. And I did it because had I not gotten her out based on 70, her rights, yeah, $70,000, based on her rights as a tenant, had I not, had I not gotten her out, I couldn't really sell it for top dollar, right? Because then it would be the next person's problem. Um, I couldn't rent it for hire because she had rent control. There were a lot of issues. And I would say the other thing that I learned is that if you ever have a problem and you see that there's a problem, for example, I knew once I bought that property that I needed to get that tenant out, that that was going to be an issue because there was rent control. I should have nipped it in the bud then. I should have made her an offer then as opposed to waiting 10 years. Because at that point, it already had matured and then she had a kid and then she, you know, there were all kinds of things that went on. Also, you know, in Los Angeles, if you have children, then it makes it even harder to, to you know, make offers to move people out. So these are all things, but I think, in, I think these are all things to consider. And in any scenario where you have a situation, I think it's always best once you see the situation in real estate investing is to, is to deal with it right then. Don't wait. Well, wow. yeah, it's like a water leak, right? Like, like a water leak. Things like that. Yeah, you just don't ignore those. Like exactly. you gotta. Like if you have a small water leak and you're thinking, well, just wait till it gets worse. <laughs> yeah, right. What's the what's the most you've ever paid to get somebody to move? Me? Yeah. You mean like cash for keys? Yeah. I I have never done cash for keys. Because <laughs> you live in Nebraska. <laughs> yeah, I, we just we just throw all their stuff out in the street here and lock oh, the door. Oh gosh. You're no, joking. I'm kidding. Well, it's not too much of the truth. Yeah, it's very, very much more landlord friendly uh, from what it sounds like uh, here. Yeah, it's uh, you can usually have somebody out the door within, what, four to six weeks? Yeah. Right. Uh, in, yeah, most, in, uh, most states are, are like, uh, like yeah. that, other than New York and California. And 
I understand it. I understand they're working to protect rights and it, it sometimes gets a little lopsided. So I just looked at it when I had to pay all that. I thought, well, I'm supporting her. Hopefully that money will do something good for her in her life. And I blessed it. And I still made a lot of money on the property when I sold it. So you're a better person than I am. Um, yeah. <laughs> my, my face was just like, oh my God, I just, they just heard that. <laughs> well, we're, uh, we're coming up uh, at the end of the show here and we have a section. We're almost out of time. Let's get into the OT with Owen and Ted. Where we've got a set of questions. We uh, gave you kind of the answer key before, or not the answer key, but the, uh, you know, this is like you stole the questions of a test on, in college from your, your sister that was there a year ago. Uh, but we have our, our first question for you, and this is uh, uh, hopefully one that uh, is easy for you to answer. What will your first book be titled, and what topic are you going to cover? Well, that's really easy because I did a book, and it's called <laughs> Millionaire's Mentality, Professional Women's Guide to Building Wealth Through Real Estate. We did not plan this, but great plug. Uh, <laughs> next book, I do think about writing another book. Uh, I, I did put out an ebook. Uh, on this, which is a more sophisticated version that has a lot of information that's on my website. If you just go to tamarbook.com, you could probably get it. And uh, and I did that. Uh, and the next book, I am not 100% sure yet because I am in an I'm in a process of evolution right now. So books are a big commitment and takes a while to write them. So want to make sure that I feel very called before I dive in. Yeah, that makes sense. How has writing that book changed your life? Well, it's interesting. I would say writing, the thing about writing a book is that it's something that will live by, beyond you. Yeah. So the biggest way that it changed my life was that when I look at it and I hold it and I see that it's impacting people and people read it and that I created it if I'm gone or when I'm gone, my kids can read it and look at it. Their grandkids can read it. It's a really neat feeling to kind of create a piece of legacy. It also has created a lot of opportunities because when you have a book, it establishes you as an authority and it's not an easy thing to do. So as soon as you write a book, it says something about the kind of person you are. And especially if it's, if it's a thoughtful book and it has some good material in it, it really gives people an opportunity to get to know you and see what you're all about in a really intimate way. Was it easy for you to pick that topic? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, yeah. I did it honestly. I when I wrote it, I wrote it more for also for marketing. Uh, a friend of mine, I'll give a sh I'll give a shout out to Anna David Legacy Launchpad. She is a has a book publishing company, one of my closest friends, and she always says that if you're not writing a book to monetize it, then you're wasting your time. <laughs> Although she is a New York Times bestselling fiction author, so so she's a little biased. But she's a little biased. <laughs> so you can interview anyone in the world today, and it's your podcast. And you get to ask one question to somebody alive. Who is it? And what's the one question you want to ask? Well, it's interesting. You threw this at me right before. So I didn't have a lot of time to plan. The person that came you, you back. You do that purpose, just, you know. I know, right. I know. It's good because otherwise, yes, it, I think it's great. So the person that came to me was Sarah Blakely. And, and what I would ask her is... What size Spanx do you wear? Yeah, what size Spanx do you wear? I think I would just 
ask her Sorry. just one thing that she's never told anybody so that we could learn something new about her. Cause she's obviously inspirational, successful, has got a great story, great family, great personality. She's just the, the big grab bag of goodies. So I guess I would ask her, tell us one thing that no one knows that would really inspire people. That's a, that's a great question. What uh, I actually, I really like that. I don't think we've ever had anybody say something. That? Yeah, that was, that was good. I'm stealing that now. That, that okay. was her tagline. Uh, no, I, I do like her stuff though. I'm a big fan of Jesse Itzler, her, uh, her husband. He's got a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff going on too with, uh, mindset and all the, all that stuff he's in. But, um, yeah, great Very answer. Very dynamic duo for sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we are moving on to darker times where it's the end of, uh, Tamar's, uh, existence. We're at your funeral. Somebody's giving your eulogy. Who is it? And what do you hope they're going to say about you? This one is pretty easy. It's got to be my husband because we've been married for 25 years and he knows me the most. And I also think he'd probably say the nicest things about me. <laughs> so <laughs> selfishly, I want to have someone who's going to just tell me that I'm great. Hey, that's a good answer. Yeah. That. yeah. So I, I think that, and I think what would he say about me is just what a, what a great person I was and how beautiful I was. <laughs> <laughs> What everybody wants. What else do you want people to say about you? I, I find that after asking this question a hundred plus times over the years, that the way I think about it is totally different. Like originally, I was like, "Yeah, I want my kids and my wife to be the ones up there, right?" And then at the end of it, I was like, "I'm, I'm now like, I think I just want my 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 best and closest friends up there telling the funniest stories ever that they could tell, and just get the crowd laughing." That's uh, and then. And then who was it that we interviewed that like they, they picked out celebrities to come speak on their behalf? <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, I know, I know what you're talking about. I don't remember who that was. We'll have to figure that out. It wasn't. Yeah, I wouldn't want a celebrity that did because they don't know me. So then they're just putting on a show. It's not from the heart. If they knew me, if I was connected to them, like if I was best friends with Halle Berry, of course I'd want her to come. And I may also actually one of my, one of my closest friends, I may, I may would want her to, cause she's super eloquent and she'd also say nice things about me. I think somebody picked Samuel Jackson. I was just going to say that <laughs> either him or James. Well, or he Jones. doesn't even know you. It's just a, I, I don't know. You know what? I'm not here to judge Samuel Jackson. <laughs> God bless it. Morgan, for, Morgan, Morgan Freeman. Freeman. Yeah. Thank yes. you. Yes. He has a that good would... voice. Yeah. My husband <laughs> did a film with him. And here lies Ted Cash. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. That was bad. You gotta switch cameras so she can see you. Yeah, but no, the camera on that. Oh, uh, you gotta sound. You gotta thumbs down on that one. <laughs> all, all you're gonna hear is this lovely ghost voice from from beyond. So, what I'm gonna ask you, Tamar, is when you were younger, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? So, this is a good question. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I had no idea, and it was very scary for me because. I didn't really have a lot of things that I grasped onto that I loved to do. I guess I just maybe wasn't exposed to, to a lot that I could dive into. I didn't have uh, what we have today where we put our kids in tennis and gymnastics and book clubs and you name it. So I didn't really know, although I did love to play with Barbies and I do have a, a, a good friend, Garen Jones, who runs a very large company uh, where he helps 
people find the artist within them, the creator within them, the, the thing that made them feel joy when they were a child. And because of my Barbies, one time he had an event and he said, bring something from your childhood that made you happy. So I brought a bouquet of Barbies and he said, oh, it's interesting that you brought Barbies because you used to play and put them in houses and now you buy houses. <laughs> well, That's I didn't it. know that you and Ted had that in common. He also played with Barbies <laughs> when he was. He cool. played with Ted. I was I, in the middle of Little I find little I find out that I became a fashion designer. No. <laughs> oh my god, sorry. Okay, so but my question though is um I mean, what did your parents do uh prior? I think did were they an inspiration to you at all? Well, in, in, in what you do now? They my parents were an inspiration to me in terms of being able to survive and work hard in the world. They did not really have inspiring careers. They didn't really have wild ambitions. And I think it had to do with where they came from because I had a Holocaust survivor as for a father and I had a mother that was a pioneer in Israel. So they both had really hard childhoods and it was all about survival. So I really got the gift of survival. I'm definitely a fighter, which I think has served me well. And I think we, we should all be fighters because it's our life and we should all create the best life we possibly can for ourselves and be as good of a person as we can for others. In terms of visioning, I didn't really get a lot of that. And I could have gotten more of that from friends, but I also wasn't in the space to level up because I didn't see that I could actually engage with people that were leveled up. It took me a long time to realize that where you come from is not who you are or who you're going to be. So that was that was a journey for me. Is everything that's going on uh, with the war is that is that is that affecting your family uh, right now? It, it is. My mom's in Israel now. She actually, we were on the phone with her this morning, and she said they actually had to go and uh, go into the the um, safe safe space in the house because there was a bomb that that went off by Tel Aviv somewhere. It's a really tough situation. It's really tragic and. And uh, and sad on so many levels. So praying that all war will be over soon. Yeah, well, definitely in our prayers uh, for you guys. So thank and, you and your family. Um, it's just it's crazy to think what's going on over there. We uh, we did uh, just an interview somebody a couple weeks ago, and uh, he went down to Israel to visit his his uh, his new granddaughter. And uh, and when he was down there, it was the, when the first stri strike happened while he was there visiting the family, and he's like. And I remember calling him up. I'm like, "Hey, are you are you are you doing okay?" And he's like, "Man, the planes are flying over me right now, and hearing bombs drop is it's absolutely crazy." So, yeah, really tough, really tough. Yeah, like, I just, imagine what yeah. you guys are going through. But like I said, you're in our prayers, and we 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 hope that um everything ends there soon. And and prayers safe, to so. everyone in the world that is that is having family anywhere in the world. There's so much uh, hardship right now in the Ukraine, and a lot of countries are are under siege. So. Well, if um, if there's ever an opportunity that we could uh, interview your mom and learn more about her and her story, uh, we would love that. Just, oh, wow. uh, we have, we have we have a little side project that we've been taking on. We interviewed my grandmother. Oh, that's uh, on on a separate podcast that we haven't launched yet. But uh, oh. and my and uh, they uh, we we heard stories about my grandpa uh, getting out of Czechoslovakia when the Russians came in and and my and grandma getting out of uh, uh, Berlin during the war and they all fled to Brazil. 
And uh, the, it was it was stuff I, I mean, it was just it was pretty I you know jaw dropping to hear some of those stories. Well, uh, tomorrow I've got one more question for you. Are you ready? Yes. All right, here we go. What are you excited about in your business right now? And what could our listeners possibly connect you with uh, if you have any anything that you're looking for? Yeah, great. Thank you. What a what a generous question. I love that. So I am looking to expand the mastermind for women right now. So if you're a successful woman who has been doing well in your life and real estate and wealth building and still have questions and wanting to collaborate and learn and grow at the next level with other like-minded women, I would say, send them my way to the mastermind and, uh, Definitely go to my website, wealthbuildingconcierge.com. As far as real estate deals, I'm so immersed right now with this uh, project, this modular project, although I'm always looking for a great deal. So if there's something super interesting, then send it my way because I, I'm just a real estate investor that is pretty typical in terms of wanting, wanting a good deal anytime. <laughs> Most of us don't say no to a great deal, right, guys? That's right. True. Well, tomorrow, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it was an ab- absolute um, blessing to have you on. Uh, I definitely think that uh, if we uh, if we didn't have a time crunch today, that this could have definitely gone for another hour and a half. <laughs> I definitely would have wanted to dig deeper with the um, with the Holocaust survivor and, and Israel background that our parents had. So yeah, yeah, but that's that's fine. We still got a lot of good stuff out of this. And uh, but thank you so much. And uh, to our listeners, if you listen to the first time or the 111th time, please leave us a review, uh, preferably a five star review on any format they listen to us to. Um, that's all we ask for what we provide here today. And with that, Owen Dashner, we see us out on behalf of Rio Radio, Dennis Bertrand, and Ted Kosh. I'm Owen Dashner, and you've been listening to Tamar, the modular millionaire house hacker, millionaire mentor, Permace. Sorry. <laughs> Boom! <laughs>